Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And in part two of this special series on hate and violence in the United States, we are moving from Birmingham, which was part one, to Charleston, part two, and discussing how we normalized hate in 2015 going forward. Great. That's awesome that we're normalizing hate. I know. Nothing like (laughs) a really positive title to just get everyone listening. But a brief recap, we ended part one of this special look back to Birmingham with a note for the future, which was focused on the fear and resentment of our nation's growing diversity is at the heart of the hate that's swelling across our country. And we've seen it time and time again. We've seen it in Charlottesville, in Pittsburgh, in Poway, in El Paso, in Gilroy. And these are all very recent examples. But as we discussed before, when we were going through the history of hate, it was Dylan Roof. And yet another church massacre that set off this current resurgence of hate in a way that we hadn't seen in this country since Birmingham. And there's no better profile than we came across online to discuss this than an amazing GQ article by Rachel Kadzi Ganza. And Rachel, I'm super sorry if I just butchered your name about the making of Dylan Roof. We wanted to share and discuss some excerpts here. So taking this back to Charleston 2015, in Rachel's words... Sitting beside the church, drinking from a bottle of Smirnoff ice, he thought he had to go in and shoot them. They were a small prayer group, a rising star preacher, an elderly minister, eight women, one young man, and a little girl. But to him, they were a problem. He believed that, as Black Americans, they were raping, quote, our women and are taking over our country, end quote. So he took out his Glock handgun and calmly, while their eyes were closed in prayer, opened fire on the 12 people gathered in the basement of Mother Emanuel AME Church and shot almost every single one of them dead. Roof was caught immediately, and unlike the Birmingham extreme delay of justice that we discussed in our prior episode, he was put on trial fairly quickly. And in this case, for the judicial system, that meant within two years of actually committing the crime. Felicia Sanders One of the few survivors told the courtroom early on that Roof belonged in the pit of hell. As Rachel reported months later, she said that because of him, she can no longer close her eyes to pray. She can't stand to hear the sound of firecrackers or even the pattern of acorns falling. Because of Dylan Roof, Felicia Sanders had been forced to play dead by lying in her dying son's blood while holding her hand over her whimpering grandbaby's mouth. She had pressed her hand down so tight that she said she feared she would suffocate the girl. 18 months later, she pointed that same hand towards Dylan Roof in the courtroom and said with no doubt in her voice at all that it was simple. That man there was pure evil. Their vitriol was warranted but almost unexpected since in most of the press coverage of the shooting, this anger, all of that directed at Dylan Roof had largely been erased. As Rachel noted, almost every white person I spoke with in Charleston during the trial praised the church's resounding forgiveness of the young white men who shot their members down. The forgiveness was an absolution of everything. No one made mention that this forgiveness was individual, not collective. Some of the victims and their families forgave him, and some of them did not. No one acknowledged that Dylan Roof had not once apologized, shown any remorse, or asked for this forgiveness. Or the fact that with 573 days to think about his crime, Dylan Roof stood in front of jurors and with that thick, slow tongue of his said without any hesitation whatsoever, I felt like I had to do it. And I still feel like I had to do it. I have so many thoughts. It's interesting about this thought of forgiveness. 
because just recently there was a little bit of a firestorm talking about forgiveness with the case in Texas of Amber Geiger, who had killed Botham Jean in his own home. And what wound up happening, yes, she got convicted. Was it 10 years that she was sentenced? 10 years, yep. Yeah. And a white woman, you know, walked into the wrong apartment and killed a black man in his own home, if you have not seen that news. But it was interesting because I found a quote, amazingly, from a place called Christianity Today. And I thought this really was interesting because what happened was Botham Jean's brother asked the judge for permission to speak to Amber Geiger after the sentencing and basically effectively said, I forgive you. If you have thought about this and you feel bad, then I forgive you and gave her a hug. And that was the primary headline on a lot of the news media, that photo of him giving her a hug. She's been forgiven. And it did, you know, similar to what you said about the Dylan Roof stuff, I felt like it was like, oh, she has been forgiven by all of them. But So this quote said, to be clear, I have no interest in judging the motivations of an 18-year-old man. Brand Jean spoke from the heart, but I'm concerned with how quickly people were willing to share his actions, potentially missing the greater context of the situation and missing the fuller picture of the gospel, which includes justice, not just grace. We are deeply moved by a brother's forgiveness. Are we also moved by a mother's pain? Can we hear the frustrated protesters who lament the fact that the balance of justice has tilted yet again to be lighter on whiter skin? Even in the face of overwhelming evidence of racism in our criminal justice system, too many of us remain stoically convinced that injustice is only personal and rarely, if ever, systemic. And so when a black person extends radical forgiveness, we see the grace of the gospel. But when we ignore a black person's call for justice, we cheapen that grace. Both are acting like the God we serve. We need to listen to them both. It's the sense of like, okay, one boy said, that was his personal forgiveness. That does not mean that what happened was not absolutely horrific, absolutely indicative of a racist knee-jerk reaction, or, you know, like a reaction based on race that led to the death of a human being. And not everybody in that courtroom was like, you're fine, I forgive you. It's not an overall pardon, and it's certainly not an excuse for the faulty system that we have in place that has been perpetuated for a long time. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, too, because I think that we in the media, too, are very quick to do that in racial conflict when it is there has been a person of color wronged by a white person. You know, there is one act of forgiveness and then it's suddenly like, you know, all black people, all Latinas, all, you know, whomever have forgiven this white person for whatever they did. But I think that doesn't happen the other way around. And that's a really interesting part. I'm glad you brought that up. Going back to Rachel's analysis of Dylan Roof, she notes, and I think this was super important, Roof was safeguarded by his knowledge that white American terrorism is never waterboarded for answers. It is never twisted out for meaning. We never identify its handlers and we cannot force him to do a thing. He remained inscrutable. He remained in control just the way he wanted to be. That's interesting. I mean, who does Roof represent? In this case, you know, the article also says he represented the white poor, the people who are not the college-educated, successful white business people. He represents the people who feel like their opportunities have been taken away from them because they're white and therefore entitled to them by others, including people of color. It's an, an entitlement sense. Yeah, I think that it was easy for Southerners to sort of label him as an outsider, right? A renegade, because he basically took what is socially acceptable racism into something that was way more violent. 
So they made it easy. You know, he killed because he was white trash, basically. Not white like us. Not the privileged white, right, educated, sort of upper echelon of society white. But in Colombia during the trial, the gossip about what his real motivation was or what one of his motivations were was pretty rampant. And some of the people who knew the Roof family said that there had been a rape that had occurred of someone close to Dylan Roof at the hands of a group of black men. So whether or not that's true, it had been kept a secret and there was a possibility that Roof had found out and decided to seek payback in the most sort of cowardly way. That was why he kept saying things like, I had to do it, and why he told the nine victims, who were predominantly women, that, quote, they were raping our women. So unclear if that's true, but that was the gossip that was going around during the time of his trial. And I know we mentioned Birth of a Nation in a past episode, but it sounds sort of familiar to that, right? Can you just give us a quick reminder about that? Yeah, basically, Birth of a Nation was a film that was created back in, I think, 1915, maybe 1920, about white men having to uphold the virtue of white women, basically, against, you know, that being taken away by black men. So and, you know, I think Emmett Till was another great example of this where, you know, you have a 14 year old who's killed because he talks to a white woman and that was misinterpreted by white men. Okay, so basically, they're saying and this is sort of scary, but like that storyline of, oh, you know, he is defending the white women's honor. Mm-hmm. Frighteningly to me, I've heard that storyline. And now we just talked about two other reasons why. Like, for some reason, that seems to make more sense intuitively as a person, even though it's totally, what's a not swear word? Like, that's not right. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's really hard to express without swearing, I think. Right. And so if I can just say this part here, but like, to the author of the GQ piece, people kept saying they felt compelled to tell the author about it because they wanted to rip the cloak of silence away from Dylan. Like, They felt like those families in Charleston needed to know the truth, that if the story was true, which is that someone in his life was sexually assaulted, and because of that, he went into a church and totally took revenge on nine innocent people, it was such an old, tried and true foundational excuse. So that storyline is familiar, but the defense in court presented another twist, which was the answers to Dylan Roof's rage lay in his unique psychopathology. So to unpack that a little, he was found to have a high IQ, but one that was, quote, compromised by a significant discrepancy between his ability to comprehend and to process information and a poor working memory. So that translated practically into sort of this OCD behavior that led him to take 88 bullets to the church and fastidiously keep only 88 friends because that was linked to Hitler and the Nazis and his overall leaning towards racial violence. So the court-appointed psychiatrist found that his ostensible lack of a social network and how fast he was radicalized to this like extreme hate violence level, coupled with his inability to forge any known connections, even in all of these white supremacist chat rooms that we know he was in give credence to the diagnosis of a schizoid personality disorder, a mixed substance abuse disorder, depression by history, and a possible autistic spectrum disorder. Much of the evidence that was sealed from the jury offered proof that he is on the autistic spectrum, but so many people have these brain wirings And they don't commit acts of violence or harm anyone. Like, that is not an excuse for any of this behavior. It doesn't justify it. It does not pardon it. 
it is irrelevant. Yeah. And I think that is so crucial. And none of that, none of what we just talked about or what the court psychiatrist talked about altered the fact that he's not insane. He was declared competent to stand trial not once but twice. And that was why he was actually allowed to excuse his legal team and handle some of his capital murder trial himself. P.S. Like you just never do this. okay? you never as an attorney, like I want another attorney to handle anything that I do that is not out of my narrowly defined skill set. So you never want to represent yourself, especially in a capital murder trial, as most of the time, if you're the defendant, you're not even testifying, let alone, you know, putting on your trial. So, you know, perhaps he was suffering from undiagnosed mental disorders. We don't know. He was definitely raised in a hotbed of racism. And maybe he was activated by this rumor of the rape. But we know for a fact that the Internet and those white supremacist chat rooms that we just talked about provided a lot of the answers that he was looking for. This is scary. Right. Did you want to talk about this? Okay. Dylan Roof supposedly went down internet rabbit holes by himself. He was going from one hate group's false information about blacks to another, absorbing false statistics about black on white crimes and other race matters. And that's from Columbia's newspaper, The State. And it was one of the things that surprised people at the Southern Poverty Law Center's Intelligence Project, which is part of the center that tracks hate groups. The head or the director there told the paper that most white supremacist killers spend a long time indoctrinating the ideas. They stew in it. They're members of the group. Like you sort of marinate in this sort of stuff, right? The director said, Dylan Roof doesn't have any of this. And they said, quote, if he's like anything, he's like ISIS people. Young people who look at ISIS Twitter accounts get sucked into the ideology and go join the fight in Syria or commit domestic terrorist attack. He's actually rather unlike your typical white supremacist killer. And this complete online radicalization over the maybe two and a half years he was in his hate like room is very atypical, end quote. And so I think what is bleep and terrifying is that if it was atypical a couple of years ago, it's not anymore. You know, there's no need for people who stew in these white supremacist thought patterns to have handlers. You don't need all that time to think about it. Right now, the internet re-energizes and indoctrinates a young community of white supremacists just from the comfort of your own home. This is like, I basically, I mean, if I wasn't sitting on my tiny kindergarten chair here, I basically would be curled curled up in the fetal position just hearing this because it's terrifying that you no longer, people aren't really indoctrinating themselves. I don't know if that's better to just spend, you know, years like absorbing all of the hate and racism that's out there, or you just, you know, you follow a couple accounts and boom, you decide you're going to kill a whole bunch of people terrifying. Well, and I think it, it speaks to like the laziness of people. Yeah. Inherently, I feel like, you know what, if you used to before the internet really wanted to exhibit some hate, you had to get your butt up out of your house, walk to the meeting, take a horse, cart, car, bus, whatever. You had to transport yourself physically and make an effort to go join with like-minded people. You had to put your physical body at risk. I mean, it's still risky to be involved with any of these groups and put yourself out there. And then you're associating your true identity with all of these other people in your group. And now it is like, it's the default. It's like, you know, all of these negative institutions, energies, forces are like so easy to rabbit hole. And if they're built anything like the porn empire is built where it just sucks you into that rabbit hole, you know, the system is wired against people. Once they go in, unless they're being 
taught explicitly that this is not okay or that it degrades human beings or whatever. It requires no effort. Yeah. You can have, it all comes to you, right? You're not going out. You're just sitting there and you can click on, especially with the attention spans that we have nowadays, you can just click on, you know, five different accounts, get five different viewpoints and, you know, decide that that's it. So if you think about the misinformation out there too. Yeah. And I don't see like a happiness rabbit hole. I'm not like, hey, let's pick up the world and be nice to one another rabbit hole. Like none of those systems are built as robustly as some of the negatively wired ones that play to our weaknesses. You know, maybe that's the next thing that has to happen. I have no friggin' idea how to combat it, but it is terrifying and it's out there and we have to talk about it, name it and talk to our real people in real life about it because you never know who's going to go down this rabbit hole. Yeah. Go ahead. You were going to say like, who are these people, right? Yeah. Who are these people? So... The white supremacists of today, having been kicked off Twitter largely, often have Instagram bios that offer this sort of warning to their opposition. Good night, left side. So just like Ruth, they don't exhibit sort of that traditional, if there's such a thing in air quotes, you know, white supremacist behavior. They are looking for answers and have a very specific, narrow worldview that they're looking for people to confirm, basically. So they're young, they're white, they often brag about how many guns they have, because these are the guns that will save them in the coming race war. So they're clearly armed, and they're often undereducated, or somewhat educated, but really socially awkward, until they get sucked into these chat rooms and this world of white supremacy where they can find friends. And oddly, and as Rachel pointed out in her GQ article, these young white supremacists call this reversal weaponized autism which just no words. So this new generation thrives off of subtext. So small things, images of a cartoon frog called Pepe, reconverted swastikas that can go undetected, hand signals that for some seem random, but for others carry this group meaning. Oh my gosh, the hand signals. I just saw that article about the Disney World Disneyland character who posed with a mixed race child and offered... I did not know that there was a freaking white supremacist hand signal, but he put his hand in an upside down okay on this little small girl's shoulder and posed for a family picture. And it was only afterwards, they didn't realize it at the time, but holy smokes, like A, I didn't know the hand signal existed. B, what a not kind decision to throw that sign into a family photo in Disney. Like, I didn't know this stuff existed. And yes, so it's happening and it's sliding in there. And unless we're aware, I mean, I sure as heck would have missed it if the news had not made a thing of it. No, but that's exactly it. It's sort of like doing those signals, having those small cues. They're sort of like passing a note behind a teacher's back, right? It's like you're in this together and it's like the secret society. Dylan Roof even wore shoes to federal court that were decorated with neo-Nazi coats and Klan ruins. He thought of himself as part of a secret fight for the future, and he figured also that one day he'd be pardoned by a sympathetic president. And I just want to make an asterisk right here. Like when you talk about psychology and what it takes to thrive, I mean, everything that I've talked about in my alter ego as a positive psych life coach, you know, person is relationships are one of the cornerstones of our happiness. It's the best predictor of our long-term health and happiness. And a sense of belonging is so critical. And to me, this screams like there's no authentic place where people here belong. I mean, they've said, said relationships are the antidote to some forms of addiction because people feel lost. I'm wondering, you know, if people had a sense of meaning, something they were working hard towards or a purpose other than white supremacy, would they still be so easily swayed by the internet into this 
belief system and having that as their sole purpose? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I would like to think not. Because yes, does evil exist? Yes, I think so. But in this way, and sort of weaponized in this sense, hopefully not. But I think what's important to realize is that we are now in an era where divisive speech, starting from the very top, from the president, has sort of given permission to these groups to flourish. Because while on the campaign trail and this, you know, Charleston, the shooting happened in 2015. So during the start of the presidential run up to 2016, right, when President Trump was elected. And so certain commentators noted that Trump would often, during this time, promulgate messages with racist cues, sometimes more subtle, sometimes not so subtle, and then just deny them, you know, say that that wasn't me. While the white nationalist community saw them and was like, yo, he's with us. So although he denied any culpability, he also has he retweeted an insult about Jeb Bush, one of the Trump's opponents back in 2016, from an account called white genocide TM. Kind of hard to take that in a different way. A quick glance at the tweet's origin revealed to this reporter, J.M. Berger of Politico, a page filled with anti-Semitic content and linked to a revisionist biography of Adolf Hitler. And on Stormfront, which is a, a message board that Roof often frequented, Having seen that retweet from Trump, a member wrote that Trump had willingly retweeted the name. The name was chosen to raise awareness of our plight. He helped propagate it. We should be grateful. So remember how we just talked about those small cues, those that the group is looking for, you know, that signal that we're in this together. They just got one from the guy who's now running our country. So what does that say? Right. And I think if we just continue with that thread of thought, it's important to be aware of what attention we give to things. You know, when we're, whether we all have our spheres of influence, that's something that you and I, Misasha, we believe in. Whether it's, you know, your sphere as a mother, a father, as a teacher, a neighbor, a politician, a business person, boss, like whatever your sphere of influence is, the things, the actions you take, the sources you share, all of those matter. So I would just say, if you're going to share something, I think we've all been guilty of it on social media. You see a really cool headline, you share the article, you don't double check. We can't do that anymore. Like, read the article, check your sources, check your information. Everything is so fast-paced that we get caught up in it. But I think now seeing the, like, repercussions, the ripple effect of that influence that Trump did by tweeting something that was obviously hated, like, you don't want to unwittingly share something that's not really reflective of your views. Like, is it too good to be true? Is it reliable, reputable? Does it really reflect what you stand for? And that does require that you actually stand for something and want to be an upstanding human. And I just think most of you listening here probably are. Most of us are good and want to do good. So just take that moment, I guess, because that is freaking scary that one tweet and it's like, he's got our back. You just never know what might happen if you just keep sharing sort of too quickly. Yeah. And I think that is so true because we have a lot of fake news out there. <laughs> so going back to Dylan Roof again. So he has this internet that basically is a community of hate that he glommed onto. But also looking at the state where he came from, he was educated in a state whose educational standards from 2011 are full of 
basically lesson plans that focus on what Casey Quinlan, a policy reporter, said was the viewpoint of slave owners and highlight the economic necessity of slave labor. So if this is what you're learning at school, it's kind of hard to separate that, especially when you're on the internet in white supremacist chat rooms. And this worldview that you have is being completely justified by what you see on there. This is a state that flew the Confederate flag until a black woman named Bree Newsom climbed the flagpole and pulled it down. This is a state that still has a bronze statue of Benjamin Tillman standing at its state house in Columbia. He was a local politician, by the way, if you don't know who Benjamin Tillman was like I didn't, who condoned terrorizing the Negroes at the first opportunity by letting them provoke trouble and then having the whites demonstrate their superiority by killing as many of them as was justifiable to rescue South Carolina from the rule of the alien, the traitor and the semi-barbarous Negroes. Yes. Yeah. So he seemed like a cool guy. And again, we did the whole episode, I think it was episode 18 on the different educational standards in this country, state by state, like places like Massachusetts talk about slavery more than 100 times in their curriculum. I think it was Louisiana mentions it less than five. There is a huge disparity in how we're taught in our schools. You can't rely on schools to educate your kids, especially when they're younger and you have the opportunity to spend time with them and talk to them about topics like this. Not quite like this, but you know what I mean, about humanity. Yeah. No, and, and I think that what is so powerful about this article and what the author theorized is that, you know, Dylan Roof is a product of what happens when we prefer to gloss over or just erase parts of history rather than really unpacking race and slavery and the history of our country. So the rise of what has happened politically since 2015 has emboldened men who have always been there you know, and not just men, but women too. But in this case, men and particularly young white men in these white supremacist chat rooms to come up and say, like, we are being supported, we can do this. So the author sort of ends this her article with a question or a suggestion, is Dylan Roof an outlier? Or is he a hint of what's to come? And the ensuing white supremacy storm? And we are terrified that it's the latter, because He's not an outlier, I think, as we can tell. And especially if you look at what's been happening on the Internet, because within the past two years, there are a number of zealous roof fans and would be copycats who have emerged, including some who have crossed the line into criminal activity, which is so terrifying. So the Anti-Defamation League has been looking into this and they wrote an article about this in which they list four separate examples of individuals who may have been inspired by roof and who fortunately were arrested before potentially executing an attack. One said he wanted to, quote, pull a Dylan roof and, quote, make the news some more and shoot some Jews. So the rise in planned attacks by people citing roof as an inspiration coincides with the rise of the pro-roof online faction. And there's this is about a group of about 40 to 50 hardcore members who refer to themselves as the Bull Gang, which is a reference to Dylan Roof's bull haircut. So the thing about this, though, is that... What is more terrifying about this group than the misinformation or the fact that there are people out there who idolize, you know, Dylan Roof, who is largely a coward? It's the fact that the very existence of this group and the fact that they are growing means that there is a much higher likelihood of another successful mass casualty attack. 
So lone wolf terrorism is notoriously difficult to catch and prevent. And just because there is no successful roof copycat out there who's, you know, succeeded before being arrested doesn't mean that that's not going to happen because the spread is out there. And that is the scary part. The further this spreads, the more people it touches, the more people that admire roof, the rise of all of this creates this subculture that thinks it's okay to go out there and kill people based on what they look like or what they believe. And they're vocal. I think, I don't know about you. I don't go telling my kids, hey, it's not okay to kill people. I sometimes assume that that's understood. We're not as vocal about being good, about what it means to respect humanity, how to be kind, how much, you know, it doesn't matter the color of the person's skin, they're still a person. I mean, how many people are actually actively having those conversations who are in the majority, who are white people who are doing this? I mean, that's half the reason we're here having this conversation today on the show. Right. And I think what is scarier, too, I mean, because, you know, we assume that there are basic fundamental morals that people possess in society. And when those are gone, that is terrifying. But also because of the fact that it is okay now for people or people feel that it is okay to come out and share views of hate and views of white supremacy. That alone is also scary. But the fact that they don't, this younger generation, the Dylan Roof generation, does not understand the history of white supremacy. They don't understand the history of our country. They don't understand any of the reasons that are underlying the actions that they might be taking. That is even more terrifying because it's exactly what you were talking about, Sarah. It's the lazy, the easy way, right? You just, you click on something, you're like, oh, Well, that justifies the tiny thing that I have thought I should go kill some people. That's terrifying. And it's not out there. It's not an impossibility. It's not out there. The frightening part of terrorism is that you never know when it's going to hit, who it's going to hit. And that causes all of us to live in like this undercurrent of fear all the time. And that is not good for any of our health or wellness or life. It sucks. Right. And I think that the, you know, the... One of the key takeaways here is, and we'll focus more on takeaways in part three of this three-part series, but that this is not terrorism that we see like we did in 9-11. This is terrorism that comes from within. This is terrorism that is young, that is white, that is armed. And this is largely led by white men. And there is some thoughts now that there is another group also called the incels, which are, quote, involuntary celibate men who blame their lack of sexual success on women and modern society writ large. So going back to that same personality profile of maybe being highly socially awkward, maybe being very withdrawn, but finding this community online and creating this platform where everyone believes it's okay to act out that terrorism is coming from within. That is perhaps the scariest. Right. And so for people who are not even, they're like, well, I'm not black. I don't have to worry about it. This incel movement along the similar lines, that's about women. And that is, I mean, I remember this guy's creepy. I couldn't even watch the whole thing, but he filmed like sitting in the driver's seat of his car, his little manifesto, him talking to himself about how, you know, nobody would date him. And therefore he was going to go kill people who looked happy dating. And he did. He killed like six people in Santa Barbara in 2014. It is creepy, but even creepier is that in these forums, these involuntary celibate forums, he's referred to as Saint Elliot. People post pictures and memes of him and they think that he's great. 
Like, it's crazy. So the guy in 2018, the man who killed 10 people in Toronto by ramming a van into a pedestrian sidewalk, he cited Elliot Roger, that guy from Santa Barbara, as an inspiration in a Facebook post prior to the attack. Like, the more these things happen, the more people find inspiration in other people to latch onto. And it's this really negative, frightening ripple effect that we have to counter by speaking up with a lot of love, humanity, compassion, and awareness. Right, because we have the power to decide who our heroes are, and they cannot be these killers. So we have to move the needle. And along those lines, we thought that this would be a two-part series when we originally envisioned this. But it's now three, because apparently we have so much to say about this. So if you haven't caught part one, go back and listen to that. But part three is coming up next. And from Charleston, we're going to move towards the present. More acts of domestic terrorism, but actually more takeaways. Like, what is the psychology here? What can we do if we are trying to move the needle? So please stay tuned, rate and review us. And please subscribe. And drop us a line. We're at hello at dearwhitewomen.com. We'd love to know what you think or, you know, what you want to hear. If you love what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review while you're at it. Also, if you're looking for some great email, who isn't, sign up on our website, dearwhitewomen.com, and get our weekly email every Wednesday that gives you special bonus insider tips. You can also find us on social media. Sarah, can you tell us where to find? Absolutely. On Facebook and Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and on Twitter at DWW Podcast. Find us there. <laughs>